Hello, and welcome to Hickory Grove's Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Michael McEwen, and I pastor Hickory Grove in Trenton, Tennessee. In this particular Sunday sermon, we deal with what it means to be a stone's throw from God. And in fact, if you do a little bit of study of throwing stones or gathering stones in the Old Testament you discover that the actual casting of stones away typically had intention. You didn't just throw a stone to a nearby field, but it was usually related to one's agriculture or one's future home or architecture. So you would throw stones, you would cast them out with the intention of one day gathering them again. So what we try to investigate is how God sometimes exiles his people. He casts them out only to gather them later into what Peter calls a living house, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And so we begin to connect Ecclesiastes to Peter and try to discover what it means to be the church as a spiritual house of the living God. I hope you enjoy. Bibles with you this morning. If you would, please turn to Ecclesiastes 3. We made it a verse further this week. We stayed uh, on verse 4 for a couple of weeks, but we have officially made it a little bit further. If you found your spot, please stand for the reading of Christ's word. May you hear Christ's voice this morning. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word this morning, the reminder of the wisdom that just gushes forth from Ecclesiastes. So now open our hearts, our ears, our minds, all of who we are to receive your word but more importantly, to be a people of your word who live it out. Christ, we offer this time this morning for the hearing and receiving of the bread of life that we can feast on your word. We offer these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I didn't quite make uh, the title this week to Miss Jenny in time. Uh, as I caught her Friday night going up the stairs to sit down for the game, she stopped me and said, you didn't send me the title. I said, I know I have five. And so it was very difficult to figure out which one really fit best with the sermon this week. Uh, so I did end up with the title. It is called A Stone's Throw, A Time to Cast Away Stones and A Time 
to gather stones. And as you can probably figure out now that I tried to connect the kids' uh, riddle to this, what did the girl stone say to the boy stone? Be a little bolder. I tried that last week. I just couldn't quite fit the themes together, but thankfully I did this week. As you can see, we are focusing on verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Stones in Israel had a number of functions. If we can just read from the first six books of Scripture, we can see stones that come up again and again and again. The first, one of the first places that we see stones is in Genesis 11, what we call the Tower of Babel. Here you have a people who are trying to build a city and a tower for themselves. And if you read the scripture, it says that they tried to make a, quote, name for themselves and build this life up to heaven. And if you remember the story, God continues, to, he comes down and he changes the languages in order to disperse them. So we already had this lesson early on that we cannot build any of our lives up to heaven, but it's actually God who comes down to us. And we see this perfectly in the person of Christ. If you move forward beyond Genesis 11 to Genesis 17, we have the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. And in Genesis 17, we have already another reminder that God is going to keep his faithfulness and his promises to a people through this father Abraham and he does this through nothing other than a circumcision and so flint was used sharpened stones for the male circumcision so there you have stones again or if you move forward into Egypt and Israel is there they are making all of these stones all of these bricks from mortar and from sticks they're piling all of these stones together in order to make this great architectural site for Egypt. And they are the ones making the stones. And if you keep going further in uh, the story of Exodus, you get to Moses. And they come to a place uh, where they have no water. And God commands Moses, strike this rock with your staff. And Moses listens and he obeys and he strikes the rock and water gushes forth or if you move forward into exodus if you want to read this is from chapter 25 to chapter 40 where you have all of this construction of this future temple that's going to take place there's a couple of those chapters that are devoted to the building of the actual temple itself and these stones that will be piled together that will create this entire structure known as the temple. Or if you jump forward in another book, Leviticus, right after Exodus, you will see quickly that here is a priesthood and a people who are approaching God in order to commune with Him, in order to worship Him. Well, where they gathered was at a place, a structure, an altar made of stone where their sacrifices would be made. And where they would worship this Yahweh. And if you jump a couple more books into the book, uh, book of Joshua, you get to Joshua chapter 4. And you have the people who have taken this long, long journey from Egypt, 40 years of wandering. And finally they come to a place that is their promised land. 
But before they get there, they have to go through the Jordan River. And so what God tells Joshua to do is to take one elder from each of the tribes, 12 tribes in all, take each of them, and they are to grab a stone from the river Jordan, and they are to place them there beside the Jordan. And as God tells Joshua, this will be a memorial, a remembrance, a tangible remembrance for how I brought you out of Egypt, a land of slavery, and into a land of freedom. And as your children ask, as they come up to the Jordan River, what are those stones for, Father? Well, that is for us to remember God's faithfulness and how he brought us out of a land of brokenness and sin and into a land of freedom and abundance. But if you look at just these examples from the first six books of Scripture, how they are used. Well, Babel, as already hinted at, is that all of these stones are piled together in order to build a name for themselves. It's negative. They're building a name for themselves. Not building a name for God, but for themselves. Or the Abrahamic covenant. This is God telling his people to circumcise themselves. And this will be a remembrance of God's promises to, uh, to Israel. Notice how the stone is used. Or Moses at the rock of Horeb. This is God's faithfulness and his provision even in the midst of a wilderness and desert where there's no water he provides. Or if you move to the temple construction, this is where pe the people came before God and God dwelt with his people. So the stones were used as a place in which we remember his presence is ever so near. Or Leviticus, it's very similar. You have this stone altar that the people can come to and give their offerings, whether it's grain or animal sacrifices, and they remember God's faithfulness and also how the very fact that God wants to come near to them. And then if you go into Joshua, you have this memorial, these 12 stones as a memorial, a remembrance of how God always is faithful to his promises. And we could keep going forward beyond this, past Joshua, into the rest of the Old Testament, and even into the New, and how the stones were used. But what I want to focus on this morning is that verse, a time to cast away and a time to gather stones, here in Ecclesiastes 3.5. When we hear this, these terms of casting away and of gathering them back in, we need to have two meanings in mind. First one, agricultural, and the second one, architectural. Whenever an Israelite would begin to get his fields ready for the year, he would clear the land of any impediments, any obstacles before he plowed his or her land. Or architectural, if he wanted to build a new home in an area, you clear the land. Move everything from it so that you can then build in that space. Well, we know this even to this day. We build homes. If you ever built a home or even built onto a home, one of the first steps that you take is that you clear the land that you're going to build on. If you leave a large rock and you try to build on the rock, it will completely destroy the foundation 
and it'll destroy the building eventually with time. Where if you've planted a garden, what do you do early in spring? You clear out the land. You take the sticks, any impediments, the acorns that have fallen, anything that is there in your garden, you clear them out before you till the land itself. This is what I do in my garden each spring. I take all of the acorns, oak tree right over top of my garden, and I have to go out there and pull all the sticks out, all the acorns out, and then work up the actual land itself, the earth. But I have to clear those things first. Or even when we lived in Wake Forest, North Carolina, uh, it's very rocky in Wake Forest area, and you would see these big companies, these large tractors that would come in, and they would clear the land. And what they would do is they would take these boulders, very large rocks, and they would move them and they would stack them into one big large pile. Have you ever seen this? They would stack them off to the side and then they would clear the land, smooth it, make sure it's right. And I guess some other uh, big rig came in and took the big boulders out. But once it comes to clearing my garden for the spring, I'm very unintentional when I clear it. I take the sticks and the acorns and there's plenty of land on the other side of my fence. I just throw them. I throw them over the fence. I don't gather them together, but as I'm kneeling in my garden, I'm just throwing them over my back. It's not so with Israel. Once it comes to a casting away of stones, they were very intentional when they were agriculturally planning. When they were casting away stones and building a new house, they were intentional where they put the stones because they would then have to use the very stones that they cast it away, gather them again, because they would use those very stones for the building of their homes or those stones again for the building of their fences because they always kept them at a stone's throw away. They didn't take them far off. They kept them near. The people of Israel, if you've read the entirety of the Old Testament, you'll see this cycle happen. You'll have these people who are delivered and restored, but here begins the cycle. They continue to disobey their father's voice, and God the Father will actually take them from their land, cast them out, and then later he will restore them. You see this cycle over and over again, and in fact, one of the promises that God gives them and one of uh, the lessons that God gives them in Deuteronomy, if you read Deuteronomy as a whole, it's, a, it's five sermons that Moses preaches to the people. And, they're on, and the entire time, they're on the outskirts of the promised land. They don't move. They're just sitting there throughout the entirety of Deuteronomy, sitting on the outskirts of the promised land. They can look over the Jordan River, and they can see the land that God is about to give them. And... All of these sermons are devoted to two things, blessings and cursings. And you can read these in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. God continues to tell them, I'm about to put you in a land of abundance, a land filled with milk and honey. Everything you need is there. But guess what? You're going to disobey me. He already tells them. You're going to disobey 
and I'm going to take you from this land and put you in another land, and you'll realize your disobedience. And guess what will happen? I will restore you back to this land of promise, and you'll disobey me again. And then I will restore you back to this land. So you see this cycle of disobedience and restoration, disobedience and restoration. And it happens in two big exiles. The first one, the Assyrian exile. Assyria was a neighboring country. God tells them, you're going to continue disobeying me. But please listen. Please listen. Because I have these countries waiting for you to take you out. And Assyria is one of them. And it happens around the 8th century, 740 B.C., we estimate. And Assyria is going to come in, take you out of this land. You're going to remember my promises. And you're going to repent. You're going to turn your ways. And I'll restore you back to the land of promise. And it wasn't 150 years later that here they go again in this cycle of brokenness. They're not taking care of their own people. They're actually oppressing poor people. They're oppressing people who are needing healing. They're casting them out. They're taking advantage of the land in the area, as Isaiah tells us. They're doing everything that is not just and good and right. And God says, I'm going to send another country, Babylon. They're going to take you out of this land and take you back to their land In that land, as you're weeping and crying, you remember the promises that I gave to you. You'll repent, and I'll bring you back to that land again. So you have this cycle, repentance, restoration, repentance, and restoration. And as we end the Old Testament and sort of the beginning of the New Testament, we still see the people experiencing exile. If you read the entirety of the last part of the Old Testament, you see that the Greeks are in power. And if you read just the gospel accounts of the New Testament, you see that the Romans are in power. Even in their own land, another country is over them. So that was considered a type of exile. They didn't have their own independence as a country. They didn't have their own independence as people who could show what it meant to love Yahweh, to love God. So you have, again, exile right there in the beginning of the New Testament. And so there is this expectation in the New Testament of a figure that is going to rise up, a new Moses, and also a new David. And the hope is that the people of God will be gathered back, that the exile would end, and this Messiah, this new Moses, this new David would provide restoration to them. And if you read Matthew, the first seven chapters of Matthew, you can actually see how Matthew is retelling the story of Israel. Go home and do this today. Read Matthew 1 to 7, and you'll see that here you have a recounting of the story of Israel. It's miraculous of how he does this, how he puts this all together. You have this, in second chapter, this flight from Egypt where Moses, uh, sorry, with Jesus is with Mary and her husband. And they're told to go to Egypt because there's going to be this murdering by this Pharaoh. And they're going to flee from Egypt back into the promised land 
This is a retelling of the story of Israel. They're going to leave Egypt and come back into a promised land. And there's going to be one who is trying to murder. As Pharaoh tried to murder the Israelites, Herod is trying to murder the Israelites. If you keep working down, finally in John, uh, sorry, Matthew 3, John the Baptist prepares the way. Well, you have this baptism of Jesus. Well, the waters of the Jordan were seen as a baptism for Israel. They are moving out of a land of Egypt and they're being baptized into the waters as they cross into the promised land. If you keep moving further in Matthew 4, you have this temptation of Jesus. Just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus too is tempted in the wilderness. As Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is being tempted 40 days. So you have a retelling of this story in Matthew 1 to 7. And then if you read chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, here you have Jesus going up on top of a mountain and the crowds coming near so that he can give them the instructions. Moses going on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the instructions and then passing them on to Israel. Here we have Jesus as the better Moses, as the better David, and the better Israel. It's remarkable. And Matthew's trying to tell us the Moses that you think is great, we've got a better Moses. The David that we thought was so great in his rule and reign, we've got a better David. Or even Israel, you as a people, guess what? You continue to go through that cycle of brokenness, disobedience, and repentance. Not with this Israel, this Jesus. He doesn't have any sin. He's tempted, but he never falls to that sin. He is without it. And so what Matthew is trying to get us to understand is that this Messiah that has come is going to gather a scattered people, an exiled people. If we go to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 7, Peter says this to a people who are in exile, these churches that are scattered throughout all of the Roman area, and they're looking for some sort of hope. And Peter delivers this message to a group of churches, and he says this in verse 4, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So for it is honor to those who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Look at the verse 5 right here. It says that these living stones being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. <coughs> living stones. Here is this Jesus who is gathering these scattered stones. And he is founding them on himself as a spiritual house. Restoring them into a unified structure 
to be a people who represent God. When I was in Haiti in 2010, we were traveling through the streets of Haiti five, six months after the major earthquake. And as we're traveling through the streets of Port-au-Prince, the major city there, we come across this large structure. I mean, this massive structure. And I asked one of the Haitians, what in the world is this large, it's a huge wall, about 12 feet tall, and this large structure on the inside, what is that? And he said, that's the embassy. That's the United Nations embassy. And so what you have, if you know what an embassy is, it is a representative of another country while they are in a different country. An embassy represents another country or set of countries while they are in a different country. So here you have the United Nations representing several different countries yet stationed in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince. Once it comes to understanding our, our own life as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, we represent God. We re represent a heavenly Father here on earth. We represent a citizenship that is in heaven, not just an earthly citizenship. So we represent God in the priesthood that we give. Priesthood, if you know anything about a priesthood, it is where we represent God in no matter what affair. We are used as Him as representatives of Him. And this is, Lord willing, performed in the Spirit through Christ. Because that is what Peter is after in this second chapter, that we are built on a cornerstone. This spiritual house, this holy priesthood is built on a cornerstone. And a cornerstone is very important to any home building because it is the first stone that is set in the construction of a home or any building or structure. And all other stones are used and built on in reference to that cornerstone. They're laid on top of that cornerstone. In other words, if you don't get the cornerstone right, the whole structure is completely off. But if you're cornerstone is perfect like Jesus in his perfect sacrifice is perfect then you can be assured that the whole house the spiritual house is too also built in perfection so once it comes to honor calling as the church and our identity as the church we were once a scattered people a castaway people but because of Jesus our cornerstone and our perfecter of our faith, the builder, he has gathered us through his life, death, and resurrection as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, in order that we would represent him in every area of our life. Because, church, there are still scattered stones out there that need to be a part of this spiritual house and this holy priesthood. So we are there for them. And notice Peter says, we are being built. The spiritual house isn't done. It's not finished. We are being built. So we need to remind ourselves that we are a priesthood who represent who God is and a spiritual house where God dwells in us. 
and we live out that restoration and redemption before others. And we're going to have to go through that same cycle that Israel did of repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. This week I had to repent and apologize to Jade a couple of times. I had to repent and apologize to Ezra yesterday. And I was restored to them. And I think this is something so foundational to the Christian life that we are to be a people who realize that we drown in grace. We drown absolutely in grace. Our heads aren't above the waters of grace, church. We're drowning in grace. And the more that we realize that we're drowning in grace, it's quicker that we move towards humility and say we're sorry. And also we move towards humility in demonstrating that grace to others. When we are being built as a spiritual house, we're being built to heal, we're being built to give hope, and we're being built to show the humility of Christ. All founded on our cornerstone, Christ himself. I'll close with this. One of my friends uh, in the Ph.D. Uh, department that I met a couple years ago, he said he did this about 10 years ago. His youngest, or sorry, his oldest now was just being born, and so he collected this jar, large jar, and he put 18 stones in this jar. And then each year that that child had a birthday, he took a stone out. Next year that the child had a birthday, he took another stone out. And so what this, these stones in this jar represented was that he had 18 years to cultivate the heart of this child in the ways of Jesus. And as that jar continued,